This is Inspired in 15, where we dive into big ideas with the smartest founders and operators we know. In this episode, Charlotte Ross speaks with Sandra Clark, Chief Operating Officer at Blue Shield of California, all about the future of healthcare transformation. We'll welcome Sandra after the break. Support for Inspired in 15 comes from the law firm Cooley, a global leader in venture capital financings, M&A, IPOs, and public company work. Cooley advisors entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world where innovation meets the law. Learn more about the firm at Cooley.com and also at CooleyGo.com. Cooley's award-winning free legal resource for startups. Welcome, Sandra. I work closely with our health tech portfolio here at Inspired, so I'm very excited to chat with you today. Let's dive right in. I'd love to start today with an overview of your role as Chief Operating Officer at Blue Shield California. Can you break down how your role as COO fits into the larger goal of improving the health of Blue Shield's members, positions, and communities it serves? Certainly. I have a very interesting mix of responsibilities within Blue Shield. We are just for background and not for profit. We pay taxes. We have a pledge that if we make more than 2% of our net income, we give it back to our members and to our communities. So as part of that, I'm responsible for operations, customer experience, sales and marketing, corporate or business development, and procurement. There are probably a few other things in there too, but- That's a lot. (laughs) Oh, and then I am the executive sponsor for our pharmacy reimagined effort as well, because- Before I came to Blue Shield, I was in the uh, pharmaceutical industry for a few years. I've also been in other parts of the healthcare industry, too. So I I bring some different perspectives. The work that you're doing there is truly incredible and aims to touch so many parts of the broken healthcare system, from reimagining pharmacy care to real-time claims to integrating electronic health records. What is Blue Shield's vision for the ideal state of healthcare and how is the Pharmacy Reimagined program contributing to that? There are a few things wrapped up in that question. So let me start with our overall vision is that we have a healthcare system from both a a delivery and a payment perspective that I would call completely out of whack with the rest of the way we live our lives. It's something where we should be engaging with it on a more proactive basis. And instead, we really engage with it when we're sick. And It has a series of perverse incentives or misaligned incentives, depending on the area. And it also is very backward from a technology perspective in many cases. We have very cool technology when it comes to imaging and diagnostics and some things coming out in the pharmaceutical space that truly change patients' lives. And we're still one of the few industries out there that keeps the fax machine in business because you have to move a lot of information around on actual paper via fax. When you went to the doctor last, I bet you had to show an ID card. And even if you had a digital ID card, they made a copy of it on a copy machine. So there are many parts of the healthcare system that we think can be made more efficient, more consumer friendly with digitization and automation. And then when you get to the pharmaceutical side, You can wrap all of that together along with the fact that, as I said, we have um, misaligned or perverse incentives in the system. And this is a perfect example where most of the entities that are in the pharmaceutical supply chain make more money, get rewarded when the price of the drug goes up. 
because so many of their fees are a percentage of what we would refer to as a list price in the rest of our daily lives. Now, that's not the ultimate price that a lot of employers or health plans pay. They pay a price that is reduced by getting a rebate. The rebates are based on volume. So again, when the patient goes in and pays more, particularly if you have a high deductible plan and you have to pay for your drugs up to a certain point, a certain deductible level, there are companies making a lot more money because they're getting a percentage off of that higher list. And it's not really giving you any benefit at all. So when we look at reimagining a healthcare system to truly have quality and care worthy of family and friends and to be sustainably affordable for everyone, you have to solve this ever escalating price system for pharmaceuticals and, and do it in a way that makes people feel that we're not simply denying them the drug that they need, because that's not at all the goal. And so you do that by bringing the incentives back into line. So everyone is being incented to make sure the patient's getting the right drug at the right price at the right time. Really interesting, Sandra. And I guess this has come up in the news just around Ozempic and a lot of these specialty drugs coming on the market through some scientific breakthroughs. And as a payer, I imagine it's, it's a complicated decision around, you know, approving these for their people in the network. How do you think about the rise of these specialty drugs and the million dollar drugs, how that's going to affect the broader kind of like healthcare landscape? At this point, I think I might consider a million-dollar drug cheap in many respects. There are multiple drugs out there and in process that are planned to have price tags at two, three million dollars and up. And many of these are truly life-changing. They are things that will take people who cannot live an active, quote, typical life because they are constrained by their illness and give them that chance, which is great. Unfortunately, the pricing that is being chosen by these manufacturers does not make them sustainable for the overall healthcare system. And these are drugs that they are not pricing at that same level anywhere else in the world. So you've probably heard many times in the news, and this part is true, that the U.S. patient is really subsidizing the bulk of the research and development by these companies and all of the shareholder returns. Mm -hmm. That becomes a problem, and it's because of the way we set the price, which is we allow the pharmacy benefit managers and the manufacturers to set this list price and then negotiate for these rebates. And then you come back to the misaligned and perverse incentives that I was talking about. What we are really working toward is paying for things on a net price basis so everyone sees what the true and final price is. Think of it as after the rebate, but everybody sees it. And equally important is that we look at these really expensive drugs and evaluate the value that they are bringing to the patient from an efficacy or impact perspective and the safety of them and really taking that into account. There's an organization that goes by the acronym ICER that has been working on models to do this for many years. And there are other organizations that are also working on that now, which is how do you look at the true value of what this drug is bringing? And so you are rewarding real breakthrough innovation at a sustainable price. 
and not paying a whole lot of money for a Me Too drug that gives you maybe a little bit of an incremental improvement. So that's a lot in one answer, but it's a very complex subject. And I will say I would never deny that the pharmaceutical manufacturers do take on a lot of risk when they look at developing these drugs. The research alone is like finding the um, spot on the needle in the haystack in terms of what's really going to work. And they can spend billions of dollars and have something fail in the final clinical trials. So that is absolutely true. And we still need to look at what's an appropriate return and how do we really value these drugs so that they are sustainable and the patients that need them can get them. Yeah, it's a fascinating topic. One question I had was, you know, Blue Shield California serves almost 5 million members across many different demographics and conditions and whatnot. How do you prioritize um, those members' needs? And as a payer and thinking about the different various benefits that you offer, like how do you prioritize across so many people? I would say that it's a combination of things. You have to look at for that particular demographic group, what are the most common disease states and making sure that you have good programs in place to treat those. And the needs of a group of seniors are going to look a little different than the needs of a group of working individuals. The Medicaid, what we call Medi-Cal in California, demographic as an example, has a lot of children. So you want to make sure that you are appropriately addressing uh, childhood vaccinations. Well, that's a little different than what you need to focus on for seniors. So you really have to look at what's the the state for what are the needs for the particular group of individuals that you're covering with that type of insurance product and make sure that you are designing solutions that are the best fit. And then you have to look at what you might sometimes refer to as edge cases, the things that are less typical for that broader population and how are you going to address those. Some of these really expensive drugs that we've talked about are a perfect example. And you're balancing it with trying to keep your premiums as affordable as possible. So it's it's yeah. never dull. Tricky equation. And I mean, if you look back at the last few years, I feel like the rise of mental health and awareness around that topic has been a big part of how payers think about care and how employers think about care. If you had to look forward to like the next decade, do you see any other trends that might arise that might be kind of as large as like the mental health trend that we've seen more recently? That one I think will continue. The other one that more people are starting to pay attention to, I think, is senior care on a broader scale. So not just the fact that we have an aging population, but some of the physical and cognitive decline that happen. And as our overall population in the U.S. ages, it's going to become a a bigger and bigger issue. And something that's near and dear to my heart is rural health care. And when you look at the lack of services, clinicians, facilities in those spaces, and then you combine it with this issue of an ever-growing senior population, I think 10 years from now, that's going to be an even bigger focus. And I think it will grow over that period of time. It's also, by the way, why we need to do what we can right now to transform healthcare, bring the rate of cost increase down significantly because it's going to continue to burden our overall society as we care for seniors. And as a venture firm, you know, we're always looking for new, exciting technologies. So from your seat, 
um, and seeing the issues that, that you face, what are some technologies in healthcare that you wish existed that would make your life easier and, and your patient and your members' population life easier? I think there are a lot of opportunities with artificial intelligence that we have not yet begun to scratch the surface on. So, for example, if you had artificial intelligence at the stage where you could use it to, and patients trusted it, to help guide them through decisions that they need to make. If it was at a smart enough stage that it could help with creating even more personalized medicine, uh, particularly on the on the drug side, but as, as well on the, the treatment side, those are huge game changers. And we are certainly looking at all of those you mentioned uh, real-time or claims reimagine, which would be point-of-sale claims resolution, if you will. And in order to do all of those things, you need to have one complete medical record for a patient that has the detail in an appropriate and safe space that can be used to pull all of this together and then do the analytics on the right way to use it. That is not as easy to make happen as it might sound. There's a lot of fragmentation around your medical records. If you've ever moved states as an example, I bet you you have records sitting in one state. And if you don't remember when you got your vaccinations or when you had that broken arm or something, it's not anywhere out there to be able to inform your future treatment if something were to arise. So we're working really hard in California to have one comprehensive medical record that includes all of your doctor's interactions, uh, regardless of where you had them done, and the lab results for everything, any type of a treatment. You went to the chiropractor, that it be in there so that a doctor has a full view. And equally importantly, that you, the patient, own and dictate who has rights to that, as opposed to now where when it sits in these different systems, they can decide whether or not to release the information so that it can be viewed comprehensively. Once you get that record fully built out from within a state, then you want to be able to reach out and say, okay, did Sandra have medical records anywhere else in the U.S.? I've lived in multiple states. I've got them scattered all over the place. It would be great if we could pull them all in. And then, especially as people age, you truly have that full picture. I remember going to a doctor's appointment with a relative of my mother's who was in her 90s, and we had to carry, no joke, a five or six inch binder with us every time she went to see a new doctor because you could not rely that all of those records had gotten transferred and the doctor had them available. Wow. We can't have a healthcare system that can give the right treatment, the right drug at the right time and price until we have a better view of all that information. So I'm really looking forward to what we're going to do with artificial intelligence to enable that and to help put our clinicians back doing true judgment-based clinical work and not doing a lot of administrative stuff. And are you actively looking for those technologies? Are you thinking about building them in-house? How do you think about engaging with startups? We use a lot of startups as partners in many aspects of how we go about doing business. And the answer to your question is yes to both. We are looking at startups and established companies in some cases and in other cases we will build but our preference is that we partner with entities that can help us scale this more broadly than just California. We want to change the healthcare system for the U.S. We're starting with California, 
but it doesn't truly make a difference if it doesn't impact my parents that live in other states or you know, pick your near and dear to you person and then feel that you've truly made a difference for them because that's why we're doing this. Yeah, totally. So I'd love to move into kind of the continuing education portion of the podcast. So what is one thing or person we should add to our media diet to get smarter about healthcare? Is there someone you followed on Twitter or a podcast or a book that you would recommend to the audience? There is a book by Dr. Peter Lee from Microsoft on artificial intelligence in medicine that I found fascinating. I find any tweet by Mark Cuban around drugs to be really spot on. He cuts right to the heart of things. And beyond that, I listen to a lot of different sources because I think you need to make sure you don't start getting into an echo chamber and you're listening to many different perspectives, particularly when it comes to healthcare. So I would have trouble naming a small list. But if you really want to look at the opportunity of artificial intelligence and some of the concerns, the things that we have to make sure we govern appropriately, the book by Dr. Peter Lee is a great place to start. It's a great recommendation. And last question, if you pay it forward to one startup in the space, is there anyone we should keep an eye on? Well, I'm really, really happy with Solera, which has been around a few years now, but but still a startup. They run our Wellvolution platform, and I think that they have been great. Nuna is another company very focused on trying to take a lot of digital information, digital stuff and turn it into actionable information for providers and for payers. And they have a real focus on Medicaid. There are a number of others. I think the startups that come at this with the right reasons, which is we're trying to have an impact on this population, make them better, make this more cost effective. All of those are good and I want to support them however I can. The ones that are doing this with an eye toward how do I go public and or get bought for a lot of money, I'm I'm less interested in calling it. I totally hear you on that. So Sandra, that's all the time we have for today, but this was so much fun and, and we really appreciate your perspective. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us on Inspired in 15. Thank you. I had a lot of fun. Sandra, thanks so much for joining us today. You can find Sandra Clark on LinkedIn and at blueshieldca.com. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, subscribe, and review Inspired in 15, and we'll see you next time. 